The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, beginning at verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with their brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to their brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin, but anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fires of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or your sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with them on the way, or they may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown in prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid every last penny. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress, and anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. And then going down to verse 48 at the end of the chapter, this section on the law closes with these words, be perfect therefore as your heavenly Father is perfect. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sisters and brothers in our Lord Jesus Christ, as I was preparing to preach this passage this week, continuing our series through the Sermon on the Mount, I stumbled across a church website. Uh, I was just browsing church websites, and this church had as its tagline on its website, no perfect people allowed. And it made me chuckle. 
Because here I was preparing to preach on what, God, what Jesus teaches us about the law of God in Matthew 5, where he calls us as Christians to be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. And I tried tracking down this church website again so that I could say what church it was and stuff like that, but it turns out that there's actually a bunch of churches that have this as their tagline, no perfect people allowed. And uh, some of you might know, as I learned this week, that there was a book that came out in 2007 called No Perfect People Allowed, which is a book about creating kind of a welcoming atmosphere and a culture of acceptance in the church. And apparently it was a big hit because if you look up a church, like church tagline, No Perfect People Allowed, you get tons of church websites, not just the one that I visited, I couldn't even find the one that I visited. There's so many churches that have this on their website. No perfect people allowed. But when we read the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus' teachings about what's required, not just for like the extra super spiritual people in the kingdom of God, but for anybody who desires to enter the kingdom of God, it makes us do a double take. Because Jesus seems to be saying the opposite of no perfect people allowed. Jesus seems to be saying only perfect people allowed. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And it's kind of ironic because this teaching here in the Sermon on the Mount is where Jesus makes clear who he is teaching against. Pastor Carl talked last week about how the Gospel of Matthew presents Jesus as this new Moses, this new teacher of the law, this great prophetic leader who makes God's will, God's law, clear to God's people. And Pastor Carl talked about how the Sermon on the Mount is all about human flourishing, this question of what it takes to flourish as a human person and what flourishing in this life looks like. How, how do we get there? How do we get to flourishing. But Jesus isn't the only teacher in ancient Palestine offering a vision of what a flourishing life in the kingdom of God looks like. There are all these different schools of thought, these philosophical and theological movements. The Sadducees, the wealthy priestly class who administered in the temple in Jerusalem, they advocated this kind of cautious participation collaboration with Roman rule, cautious collaboration with the empire. And you have the Essenes, which is like this apocalyptic group that advocated retreat from the, the regular rhythms of life in the empire, retreat from the cities where, where Rome had authority and rule, um, and, and advocated for this kind of uh, separate community where people could live these communal and disciplined lives of, of righteousness. And of course you have the Pharisees 
whose answer to the question of participation in Roman imperial life and flourishing in the kingdom of God was a strict adherence to the law of Moses, modeling an alternative way of living in the context of the empire. And what Jesus makes clear here in this teaching on the law is that he's primarily interacting with and responding to the Pharisees. And this is kind of a big deal because all of these different of all of these different religious and theological and philosophical movements, the Pharisees are the closest to what Jesus is trying to do. Ideologically, at least. <laughs> Unlike the Sadducees who advocated cautious collaboration with the empire, unlike the Essenes who advocated complete withdrawal from the empire, the Pharisees, like Jesus, advocated this alternative way of living within the empire, in the context of the empire. And this meant a particular concern for the authority of Scripture the application of God's Word for, for everyday life, the importance of holy living according to God's law, and the importance of studying God's law, both in personal devotions and in communal worship together. Who does that sound like today? The authority of Scripture, the application of God's Word to everyday life, following God's commands, and studying God's Word in personal devotions and corporate worship doesn't that sound like the church? That's awkward. But this is the thing. The Pharisees get kind of a bad rap because they're the bad guys through most of the gospel. They're the ones who Jesus is butting heads with every step of the way. They're the ones scheming about how to take care of the Jesus problem. And so in the gospel, we see the Pharisees as the bad guys. But in the history of Christianity, especially in the early church, this new Christian community largely takes its cues from the Pharisees. The practice of gathering together weekly to meditate and reflect on God's word is a practice that early Christians adopted from the Pharisees. The practice of personal devotions is a practice that early Christians adopted from the Pharisees. The practice of catechism, of mentoring new believers, of seminary education for church leaders, these are practices that the early church adopted from the Pharisees. The whole virtue ethic project that Jesus is taking on here in the Sermon on the Mount, the whole question of how to live as a righteous child of God in a world dominated by Caesar's empire without compromising and without running away, Jesus is trying to answer the same question that the Pharisees are trying to answer. It's a question that Jesus adopts from the Pharisees. And so when people in Jesus' time are listening to Jesus give this sermon on the mountainside, when Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, people right away would have thought of the Pharisees. 
The command of God repeated in Leviticus 19 and 20, Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. This was like the Pharisees' motto. If they had a website, that would be their tagline. Be holy because God is holy. This is kind of the Pharisees' thing. The Pharisees had thought long and hard about how to live holy lives in the Roman world, how to be citizens of God's kingdom while living in Caesar's empire, and they had developed all these really practical and applicable guidelines for how to navigate life in this complex and fallen world. And so they had really clear teachings on what to eat and how to stay pure, on how to honor the traditional rituals and fasts and feasts, how to tithe, how to wash yourself, how to keep the Sabbath, how to fulfill the law. And by following this strict code of living, the Pharisees said, by following these specific, concrete, applicable-to-life guidelines, people could be assured that they were living in a way that honored God, that followed his law, and that kept his commands, that preserved their status as a holy and set-apart people dedicated to God in all things. But what Jesus does here, Jesus follows in the tradition of the Old Testament prophets, and he reminds the Pharisees and us today that to God, holiness has always been a matter of the heart. Not a matter just of what you do. It's not just about what you do on the outside, Jesus says. It never has been. Holiness has always been about who you are on the inside. So the Pharisees have all these rules and regulations for how to obey God's commands in the Roman world, for how to stay obedient to what God commands. But Jesus says obedience on its own has never been what God is looking for. Obedience on its own is, has never been what God is after. Sure, the law says do not murder, but if you harbor animosity against another person in your heart, you are still doing violence against the image of God in your fellow believer. Sure, the law says do not commit adultery, but if you objectify another person in your heart, you are still violating the image of God in your fellow believer. Sure, the law says a man may issue his wife a certificate of divorce, but if men break relationship with their covenant partner for the wrong reasons, put them in a vulnerable position where they can be taken advantage of, you are compromising the image of God in your fellow believer. Obedience is not enough, Jesus says. It never has been. The Pharisees' approach to holiness, this list of rules and guidelines that people can check off to ensure that they're living holy lives, as rigid as they may be, is a cheap and easy path of outward religious devotion. You can follow all the Pharisees' rules to the letter and still have a heart of stone. You can keep all the laws and follow all the commandments and still not be the type of person 
that God intends for you to be. The rules and guidelines checklist approach to religion, to discipleship, is easy, Jesus says. It's easy. The difficult path, the path of true discipleship, Jesus says, is about forming and shaping not just your behavior, but your heart, your being. It's not just about what you do. It's about who you are and whose you are. A lot of people say that Jesus is doing something new here in the Sermon on the Mount, that he's taking a new and different approach to the commandments, to the law, broadening and deepening the meaning of the law of God. But I don't think that's a fair characterization of what Jesus is doing here. A lot of people say that Jesus is, is being ironic here, that, he, that he's uh, being melodramatic that he's setting up this impossible standard that nobody can ever realistically achieve to drive people to the realization of the, the hopelessness of their fallen condition and cast themselves on God's grace to seek his forgiveness and mercy. But that isn't where Jesus lands in the Sermon on the Mount. That isn't where Jesus goes in the Sermon on the Mount. And it seems like a kind of strange exercise in interpretive gymnastics to force that in here. Yes, we are hopelessly fallen and sinful. Yes, our only hope for salvation is the grace of God to forgive our sins in Christ. Yes, we cannot earn our salvation by doing good deeds. All of these things are true. All of these things are true. But they're not what Jesus is saying here. What Jesus is saying here in the Sermon on the Mount is what Scripture has taught all along, that righteousness, holiness, our righteous behavior, righteous practices, righteous habits, the righteous things that we do should flow out of who we are as God's people, as God's children. And Jesus does a really interesting thing in this passage that I want to pick up on because I think it's key to how we understand the whole project of what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus takes this quote from Leviticus and Deuteronomy in verse 48 here. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. In verse 48 here, Jesus is clearly quoting Leviticus 19. Be holy because God is holy. But he changes the key word. He changes the words of Leviticus 19. Instead of holiness, which would have been the Greek word hagios, Jesus uses a different Greek word. Teleos. Everybody say teleos. This is cool. 
why would Jesus have taken a passage that was so well known in his day, this passage that was the motto of the Pharisees, the mantra of their whole philosophical religious project, why would he take this verse about the calling of God's people to be like God and purposefully change it? Instead of be holy, as your Father in heaven is holy, he says, be teleos, as your heavenly Father is teleos. And most scholars agree that it's probably because the word holy has become such a loaded term in Jesus' day. Holiness to most people in Jesus' day was a term associated with the Pharisees. The Pharisees demanded holiness, and holiness for the Pharisees meant following the strict rules and regulations that they had put in place around the law of God. Holiness, holiness in Jesus' day meant following the Pharisees' rules. And Jesus doesn't want people to follow the Pharisees' rules. That kind of holiness isn't what God intended when he told his people in the Old Testament, be holy because God is holy. The Pharisees have hijacked this word to such an extent that it no longer means what God meant when he said it. And so Jesus changes the word. And I think a similar thing has happened for us with the word perfect which most translations use to translate this word, teleos. The, the word that Jesus here uses instead of the word holy from the Old Testament. The English word perfect is actually just adopted straight out of the Latin, from the Latin perfectus. And that's the word that Latin versions of the Bible used to translate this Greek word, teleos. But the Greek word teleos, the Latin word perfectus, they don't mean perfect the way that we mean perfect in English. To us, perfect means like the best possible version of a thing, the ideal version of a thing. To be free from any defect or flaw, to be exactly right in every way. That's what perfect means for us in English. But teleos and perfectus in the Greek and Latin, they don't mean that. They both carry this sense of wholeness, of completion, of fulfillment, of consummation. Teleos in Greek means that something has reached its complete fulfillment, has consummated its purpose, has wholly accomplished what it was intended for. It's derived from the Greek word telos, which means the end. The end. So maybe a better translation for us, something that gets better at what Jesus is actually saying here, is something along the lines of be righteous from the core of your being. 
wholeheartedly righteous, righteous through and through, righteous down to the very spark of your existence. Righteous like the version of you that God is forming and shaping you to be. Because that's what God is like. Righteous to the core. Righteous through and through. Righteous not just in action, not just in behavior, but righteous in essence, in character, in the wholeness, in the fullness, in the complete sense of his being. The Pharisees call God's people to do what is righteous, to follow God's law, to be obedient to God's commands. We might call this an ethic from above. God has declared his law from on high. It's black and white, right and wrong. So here's what you do. Here's how you act. Here's a list of rules and regulations, and if you follow them, you can be sure that you are holy in everything that you do. But Jesus calls us to a greater righteousness than the Pharisees. Jesus calls us to be wholeheartedly righteous. Jesus calls us to be transformed in our character, in our hearts, to be like God. Because this is what God intends for us. This is our end. To flourish in relationship with him through this union, this mystical union that we have with God in Christ. And this we might call not an ethic from above, but an ethic from beyond. An ethic from the end. An ethic from the telos from the end. By the power of the Holy Spirit, God is transforming us more and more into the image of His Son, transforming us more and more, not to do righteous things, but to be righteous things. To be the righteousness and justice of God on the earth. To be the light of the kingdom of heaven in a world of darkness. To be ministers of the reconciliation between God and his creation. To be what God is making us to be. Citizens of the kingdom of God. Even as we live in the kingdoms of this world. Jesus invites us to pursue a greater righteousness than the Pharisees, a greater righteousness than simple obedience. Jesus invites us into a whole person righteousness rooted not in what we do, not just in what we do, but in who we are as God's people, who we are becoming in Christ. Because that is the only place where we find true human flourishing, true blessing, true happiness. It's the only place that it can be found. And compared to this, Jesus says, compared to this, the righteousness of the Pharisees is downright easy. Because this ethic, this ethic from beyond, is about forming and shaping not just your behavior, but your heart. 
The Pharisees say don't murder, but I say you should desire the flourishing of your brothers and sisters in your heart. And that means that if you have a disagreement with your fellow believer, you need to nip that in the bud before you come to worship even, and definitely before you go to court. Because disagreement breeds resentment, resentment breeds animosity, and animosity breeds hatred, and hatred breeds violence. The Pharisees say don't commit adultery, but I say that you should respect the dignity of your brothers and sisters in your heart. And that might mean giving up something that is really important, even essential to you, like your right eye, or your smartphone, or access to the internet. Because what's at stake here isn't whether you're doing right or wrong, but whether you are living in relationship with the triune God and the people that he is shaping for eternity. Be wholeheartedly righteous, therefore, just as your Father in heaven is righteous, wholeheartedly righteous. People of God, it's obvious that this is not something that's possible on our own strength. But I also hope that it's obvious that Jesus isn't setting an impossible standard for us here. That these words are hyperbole that are best ignored. What Jesus is offering us here isn't a checklist of right and wrong behaviors. It's an invitation, an invitation to enter into living relationship with the triune God, with our Heavenly Father, to sink deeper and deeper into that union so that His Spirit transforms us more and more, to dig deeper and deeper into the flourishing life that God offers us when we live in relationship with Him, to every day deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Him on the hard path of true discipleship in relationship with Him. Because living in relationship with the triune God is the only place where true flourishing, where true happiness can ever be found. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, Lord our God, we stand amazed at the things that you are doing for us in Christ. We are overwhelmed by the invitation that you offer us in the Sermon on the Mount to not just do righteous things, but to be righteous things. And Lord, that's not something that's not something that's possible for us 
without your redemption, without your grace, without your forgiveness, without the power of your Holy Spirit filling every part of our being and every corner of our lives. And so, Lord, we pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. That you would bring us to the point of confession where we say that on our own, this is impossible. And that we need union with you. The strength that comes from your Holy Spirit. If we are to not just do righteousness, but be righteousness. And so, O oh Lord, we pray that you would come to us, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that you would cast out the sin in every corner of our lives and make us holy, make us righteous, make us pure, so that we can be your righteousness in this world, that we can be the light of your kingdom to this world of darkness, that we can be witnesses and citizens of your kingdom, even as we live among the kingdoms of this world. Bless us, O Lord, we pray. In the name of Jesus Christ, our great teacher, closest friend, an eternal king. Amen.